Proverbs. Proverbs 31 is where we're going to be turning in just a moment. We have been studying the femininity, biblical femininity, as we've studied before that, biblical masculinity. What does it mean to be a biblical man? And this time, Proverbs 31. We can look at the whole chapter, but we do not have the the, uh, leisure to do that this morning. But the first verse helps us with that, which I'll get to in just a moment. But in the context of our discussion, last time, last couple of times, we've looked at marriage. We've looked at the uh, design and the decree of God in relation to marriage. Marriage is a covenantal (coughs) companionship between one adult male and one adult female. And it is God's good provision for us. These male and female, of course, equal in God's image, equally, create, equally created before God, are diverse or complementary to one another. And we have different roles to fulfill with one another. Typically, that, those, those roles or relationships are fulfilled in the context of a marriage. Now, uh, we'll consider uh, another situation here in just a moment. But God has made the woman, we looked at last time in Genesis 1 through 3, God has made the woman to be a helper, to her husband, and the mother of children. So we see her context, her primary sphere or orientation is toward her husband and then toward uh, the children that God entrusts to them. We see then this this, uh, household kind of uh, picture or, or mindset that the wife has, the woman has. Well, and you think, well, wait a minute. There are so many exceptions to these these situations. What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? What if what if whatever happens? Well, one of the, or two of those situations we'll consider next week. I was going to think about doing it today, but I'm going to push it off till next week. And that is in the context of our study from Titus chapter two. That'll be our final installment on this this uh, mini series on biblical womanhood. In the context of Titus two, talking about the roles, the responsibilities of older women and younger women, we will consider. Well, what can a uh, husband and wife do who do not have children? They want children. They're open to that possibility, but God has not given them children. What can they do? Because part of the instruction of older women to younger women is love your kids. I don't have any kids. What what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What about back up a step? What if I don't have a husband? What if I don't have a wife? What can I do in, a, in relation to that? So next week, in a context of uh, studying through Titus 2, we'll talk about uh, childless marriages and also singles. Single for any number of reasons. So we'll, lest you think, well, I, you didn't talk about my situation. Well, actually, this, this context, this passage, Proverbs 31, does talk and my situation, all of our situations, because it's God's word. It is applicable to us in whatever situation of life we find ourselves. Verse 1 here, we'll just look at just as the introductory phase here. Verse 1 introduces this section, chapter 31, as the words of King Lemuel. And you think, I don't remember him as part of the, of the list. Is he one of the David's kings or northern kingdom, Omri, all these different names? King Lemuel, the oracle under which his mother disciplined him. You think, oh, the mama's disciplined. That's what's going on here. He got his lesson. Well, long story short, who is this King Lemuel? He's not named anywhere else in Scripture. He's named here in verse 1 and in verse 4 of Proverbs 31. But we don't see this name anywhere else. Some people think, oh, this is a Gentile, possibly a Gentile king that is a proselyte to the Jewish faith. Maybe, could well be. Um, there is indication of some loan words from other languages, Arabic and Aramaic, uh, into this uh, this chapter 31. So maybe there could be that, but we see that often. We see a lot of loan words. We even see it in Job. Job has a lot of words that they're not. Those aren't, those aren't Hebrew words. What are they doing there? Well, it could be that this is a. Do you know this term, nom de plume? You know that name, uh, pen name. It's the name of the, of the pen. Uh, a pen name or a pseudonym, it could be a name for Solomon. You think, what, Solomon? Well, because he wrote the rest of them, most of the rest of them, right? It's what, the wisdom of Solomon, the Proverbs of Solomon. It could be that this is just a name for himself. What does it mean? Lemuel means unto God, to God, or dedicated to God, consecrated to God. Well, wait a minute. If this is Solomon, he had a mama, as pretty much everybody does. Adam didn't. I know you're thinking the exception, right? Always think about the exception. Adam didn't have a mama, but everybody else does. Who was Solomon's mama? Bathsheba. Wait a minute, Bathsheba. And then this is the oracle that that she taught Solomon. 
And he, basically her lesson is, verses 1 through 9, or 2 through 9, are don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on loose living, all this kind of wickedness that, well, Solomon didn't listen to his mother because he went after all these things. Wine and women and um, horses. That doesn't start with W. But uh, he just went after all these, these, uh, these things and, and his heart was led astray. He celebrates, well, one of the things that the mama says is make sure that you do not give your excellence Verse 3, do not give your excellence to women or your ways to that which blots out kings. Well, Solomon gave his excellence to not just a few women. How about, where did, where did, I always forget the numbers here. You guys remember. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't think he listened to that counsel very well. He gave his excellence and he gave his sole attention to not just the women, but their gods that they represented, and his heart was led astray, and he wasted his life, contrary to what his mama had trained him to do. We see that, again, if this is Solomon, if this is Bathsheba, he did not listen to the wisdom that his mother disciplined or trained into him. He did not listen to the corrective discipline. He, he, didn't, he didn't learn his lesson, and he didn't learn his lesson beforehand, the, for, the formative discipline that, that uh, his mother tried to give to him. Well, in any event, we see the introduction to the verses 1 through 9 as the oracle that, that Lemuel, Solomon, perhaps, learned from Bathsheba. We see that continued, though, in verses 10 through 31, and we see that the picture that we see that we have here of the woman, the excellent wife, the wonderful woman, is somewhat indicative of Bathsheba. And even, you have to consider verse 2, a place I didn't want to get to, but see where it says verse 2, what, O my son, what, O son of my womb, what, O son of my vows. Do you remember the situation that Bathsheba was in through no fault of her own or whatever, however you want to assign blame in, in 2 Samuel 11, the sin of David and Bathsheba, that son born to, in that relationship, that illicit relationship, died. Bathsheba. There's no other record of any other children she had except Solomon. Can you imagine just as Hannah perhaps prayed back in 1 Samuel 1, Lord, give me a son, and then she dedicated him back to God, that maybe Bathsheba had that relationship with Solomon. She didn't want him to die. She wanted him to live a full, blessed life, knowing that he's going to be the king after David, her now husband, of course. And so when she says, you are the son of my vows, you're the son of my womb, and that was perhaps the only child she had that lived into adulthood, and he didn't listen to the wisdom that his mama gave him. But she had vows, and she prayed, and she had entrusted him to God, right? That's what Lemuel means, to God, unto God, dedicated unto God. And so it, it just brings a, a certain level of a gravitas or gravity or sobriety to this, passion, this passage that Solomon is a man just like us. He knows the good he ought to do. He didn't do it. He messed up. And he messed up for a long time. So we have, for example, three different writings from Solomon. And again, I'm assuming that Solomon will just go with that. If you want to find somebody else to attribute this to, that's fine. But we have three different writings. We have the Song of Solomon celebrating his, his wonderful match with a, a good wife, a godly wife, a, a wonderful provision of God. Then we see the Proverbs, the wisdom written down for us. Then we hear about Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, Kohelet, he's named the preacher. But we see different phases in his life Ecclesiastes, just a tremendous, of course, Proverbs 2, Song of Solomon, great, but Ecclesiastes, wow. We see somebody who has humbled himself before God. He says, I, I didn't listen to my mother. I chased after all this other stuff. But then I realized, yeah, it is the fear of the Lord. That is what really matters. I've come back to basics and realized, yeah, what my daddy taught me through positive and negative example, positive and negative instruction is true. God is worthy. God is my shepherd. And through his mother, taught to rely upon the Lord. Well, all this to say, this text in Proverbs 10 through 31 is a celebration of a, an excellent wife. And it follows after a device or a, a pattern of writing or speaking that is often found in scripture. That is to say, it's acrostic. Acrostic means that each, in this case, each successive line, or in, our, in this case specifically, each verse starts with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So you go from 10 through 31, that's 22 lines. And we see each each one, maybe your translation even has the, the Hebrew 
letter that, that uh, starts that phrase. These things were written in acrostic form, maybe for aid of organization, maybe aid of memory, maybe aid of to, to help us think or contemplate through these things. In any event, we see that he is writing this in a very structured format. He's not just writing it off the cuff. He's writing it with a deliberate intention to communicate. What did my mother teach me about a godly wife, a godly woman? Who sh- what kind of woman should I be looking for? And if you don't mind, what kind of woman should I be not in Solomon, but as a young one, what kind of woman should I want to desire? What kind of uh, character traits and skills and abilities and relationships do I want to cultivate even now as a single woman? What about, hey, I am married, and so what What should I be doing again as a married, married wife and everything? Or maybe on the other end, I was married, I'm not married now, and you can give thanks for that. I don't know what the situation might be, but you can say, wow, did I do my part? And what can I do now as a person? to fulfill this picture of a beautiful, good, godly, and God-fearing woman. These character traits are not just particularly, now some of them are, but exclusive to the marriage and family relationship, but others, anybody can do. Excellent men can do some of these things as well. But he celebrates the fact that this is what an excellent wife does. Well, so we'll just look through, this, through these verses and recognize, I won't read the whole text now, I'll just read it as we go along. As, as he develops this idea, celebrates the idea, what is it to fulfill God's design for marriage? What is it to be a woman who pleases the Lord, who fears God, who honors her her husband, who cares for her family, who cares for others, the poor, uh, interacts with uh, business people and so forth, neighbors? What what is this woman? And, And lest you realize, this woman is unrealistic. I've read this text before, and it just... Are you serious? What is this? Who in the world? Who in the world can ever fulfill all these things? Nobody. Okay, should we set that? So should we just set it aside and say, "Well, I wish there was a text for me." Wait a minute. This is the text for you, Proverbs thirty-one, for for women, for men, for any kind of relationships. We want to grow in our God-fearingness. You see what happens when you close the Bible? And you have to turn back to the page. Better just leave it open. God is speaking to us. Think of it this way. Christ-likeness. Will anybody in this life ever be exactly conformed to the image of Christ? No. So should we just let set it aside and say, well, God, I'll, I'll do my best. Usually when we say, I'll do my best, there's another word that precedes that phrase. Just. I'll just do my best. As if we're going to minimize the expectations we have of ourselves and of each other. We're going to say, well, I know that you're a sinner and you're, you're just being sanctified. So I guess you, you, can, you can have that sin. I'll give that to you. What? Aren't we going to call each other toward righteousness and the fulfillment of our God-given expectations uh, so that we can honor him and please him and bear fruit for him? Whatever the situa- situation of life can be. How about we say, we will do our best. We will engage every effort. We will do exactly what God has expected, required, demanded, defined, decreed for us so that he would be honored in us. We want to be the best we can be. We want to do the best we can be for God's glory. And so, yes, this phrase, this passage does relate to each one of us. He focuses, of course, specifically, this is the context from which I'll argue or or state from this passage, an excellent wife who can find. In other words, we're looking for this excellent wife. This word otherwise translated maybe um, here it's excellent, uh, virtuous wife, maybe uh, a woman of virtue, maybe it is in relation to uh, competence or capabilities, a skillful wife, maybe it's in, in terms of strength. We'll see that repeated here in just a little bit. Uh, she girds herself with strength and her arms are, are strong and so forth. We Perhaps it could be in relation to the virtue that has to do with moral excellence or goodness. This is somebody who is honorable, not somebody who is like we see the the woman folly is boisterous. She's always out doing different things, and she's just, you know, wicked. Just what kind of woman is that? Not an excellent woman. And so we don't want anything like that. We want somebody who has, a lot of times this, this particular word, excellent, is used to describe a, a, a strong or a militarily strong, powerful warrior. And you think, well, wait a minute, we don't want these, these women to be our, our battlers or our soldiers, do we? No, not really. But it speaks of not just a weak kind of a person. This is a strong, uh, whether physically, uh, mentally, emotionally, uh, vocationally, whatever. She has might and power to do things. She's not weak. She's not fragile. Now, she is delicate, right? We studied that in, or considered it anyway in terms of the man's responsibility to the woman. But she's not fragile. Share this. In fact, 
I didn't mention it last time, but there are various anatomical and physiological differences between men and women. One of the, thing, one of the things is that women have more anti um, white blood cells. And that, in other words, when a man gets sick, man flu, it's serious. It's deathly. We could die, right? When a woman gets sick and she has the flu, fever, pneumonia, she's still serving. She's laundry and she's mowing the lawn. I don't know what she's doing. But she's, her immune system is more powerful than a guy's. So, yes, she's fragile, but guys are fragile too. Okay? Just get over it. Uh, but this has to do with the, the physical strength, the constitution. She's brave. She's a valiant woman. She is not timid, faint-hearted, nervous. She is, has skill. We're going to see that throughout this passage. She has a moral excellence, and she is just quite a find, which goes into the next phrase. Who can find a woman like this? Who I've searched high and low, right? In fact, that's what Ecclesiastes uh, 7 uses this word fine, one, two, three, four, five, six times in, in uh, three verses. And he basically says, I have found this, or uh, I have found one man out of a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. In other words, what is it about women who, especially in this age, Solomon wrote this 3,000 years ago, in our age, can we find a woman like this? It's not a question of, is it possible? Uh, is, it, is it something that we, we've lost our women, our you know, ent wives and so forth? Is it, is it something that we just can't find where these women are? No, it is something that we just should search, search for as a man, speaking, looking for a good godly wife, or to recognize once we find that wife, that is a treasure. In fact, he says in the next part of that verse, her worth is far above pearls. I think, wow, that's pretty valuable. Yes, because when you find that wonderful gift of God, because God does give uh, wonderful gifts, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from Yahweh. So the, the finding and the, the acquisition, not in a crass way, but in the, in the, the marriage relationship, that is a gift of God. And that is allow, allowing us to fulfill more so those God-given roles of male and female and to fulfill the companionship that God expects from it. So it is worth the both the weight and the search. It's worth the effort from the woman's perspective to cultivate these kind of qualities and attributes and skills because I want to be a woman who is found by a good and godly man for whom I have been praying for a long time that he would, you know, God would open his eyes finally and, and come to me and we would make a wonderful uh, marriage and, and honor God and, and uh, uh, picture the relationship Christ has with the church. I want to be this kind of one that is a treasure, that is somebody who is worth worth more than pearls, any kind of uh, costly um, material, pearls or corals, uh, um, rubies, I think another translation has, just these valuable uh, stones or gems or, or artifacts. Well, he goes on and describes one of the, oops, ver, sorry, verse 11. One of the aspects, first aspect perhaps, of this woman, this godly, excellent wife, is that the heart of her husband trusts in her. Wouldn't that be wonderful? To be able to trust your wife so much, just implicitly, absolutely, whatever you say, dear. Not in a passive way, not in a you do whatever you want to do kind of thing, but in a, I trust you. I have no question. I know you seek my best interest. Not that that's the measure of it, but I know that you're for me. I know that that uh, you're not going to go spend this money willy-nilly, um, Parenthetically, one of the indications of financial stewardship between men and women is that in a marriage relationship particularly, women are more likely to overspend on small ticket items. Spent too much on the spinach or the, or the um, dish detergent or whatever. Whereas men are more likely to overspend on big ticket items. Um, a vacation to wherever. Uh, just And so the, the difference there is... is but financial money issues are a big contributor toward marriages breaking apart because of differences in, in how to do these things. This case, the husband trusts her, has a rest, has an assurance that whatever she does is, is good, and I can rest in that knowledge. I can be confident. I can rely on her. Uh, there's no question that she is loyal to me. There's no question of her faithfulness. There's no question that, uh, that yeah, she will do what is right. And so the result here is he will have no lack of gain. He will have no lack. This word gain is really the idea of plunder, something taken by um, military advantage or, or whatever. 
but it also more neutrally can just refer to wealth or property or profit. And so there's the benefit that the wife brings to her husband. She deals bountifully with him for good and not evil all the days of her life. She is showing goodness and not evil. The contrast there is just profound. Good versus evil. She does good. She does bountifully with him uh, all the days of her life. A consistent, constant devotion. This is something that she's permanently committed to. Uh, in sickness and in health and all those wonderful things. It's a consistent practice. Now, all the days of her life, even the bad days and the good days, but those days in between, uh, it's kind of like various people have said, you know, we've been married for 38 good years. What about those other five? Well, yeah. No, in good times and in bad, we're committed to each other all the days of our lives. And we will we'll hold each other's hands through uh, difficulty and joy and calamity and great gladness and we are together and we will do good and and be good one to another all the days of her life she's committed to this relationship now we get into some of the skills and we say well I, we don't do this anymore who who goes out and harvests wool and flax these days well the idea here is that she she verse 13 she searches for wool and flax and works with her hands in the light wool and flax are both raw materials now we can, by extension, say she goes out and buys the not just the the flour. She buys the the kernels, the berries, the wheat berries, or the barley, or whatever. She buys that, and she has her little mill at home. The idea is she's not afraid of working with raw materials. She can make things. You remember the old-fashioned phrase from scratch. What is that anymore? This woman is is able to work, and she knows she has the wisdom, the skill, and even the delight. It says she works with her hands in delight. She finds great pleasure in getting her hands dirty in whether there's the wool and the flax and shearing the sheep and so forth or going out harvesting the, the flax to make linen garments that we read about later. She is not afraid of manual labor. She is quite interested in working in things that are difficult to do. She's quite willing to uh, exercise a diligence in uh, providing for, for herself, of course, for her husband, for the children, and for others as well. She searches. She's on the lookout for these things. And we see that, and actually in the next verse here, verse 14, she is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She is able to go out and she's able, she searches out for a deal. You have got this. I'm going to trade this for this. And she knows how to get uh, a good thing on sale or, you know, got the coupons, got the discount, got the lost leaders, got whatever it else. She knows where to shop, when to shop, not on Tuesdays, but on Thursday after two o'clock. They got this because they get the shipment. in. She knows what's going on. And she is like these merchant ships that are, when you think about merchant ships, we're going to talk about in relation to Corinth. Corinth, the city, as we studied First Corinthians here in just a few weeks, is uh, a, a strategically located city in relation to traffic, sea traffic, that went around the Peloponnesus, um, the peninsula down to the south of Greece. And that journey around the south of Greece and over took longer, of course, to do that, but also very dangerous. Winds and, and seas and being close to the shore, very dangerous. Much easier, you'd think, how is that easier? To unload the ship on one side, carry all the cargo across four miles, across the little little straight there, little isthmus, and to the other side and put it back on a ship. That's a lot better than going around the other thing. But this woman, she is like a merchant ship. She goes out at great risk and, and endeavor. She will get up early perhaps to go get whatever it is, you know, get the sale, get the deal, and she, will, she, she does it. She brings her food from afar. And, verse 15, she rises while it's still night. What in the world? What are you doing? Don't you want to sleep? Well, yes, yeah, she does. She sleeps on occasion, but she rises while still night. Well, there's, there's time to do it, to get the food going so that her family, so her kids can be fed. She gives food to her household and portion and a portion to her young women. Verse 15 has this idea of a diligent laborer, one who is very aware of time and stewardship, is very intentional, has diff different things planned out within God's provision and, and providence, you know, willing for God to redirect time, but she knows I've got to get this done, not just for myself, but for other people. So back that up a little bit. We want to meditate upon God's word. We want to call upon him in morning, noon, and night. I will pray. Uh, the scripture teaches us. So here she's using, putting all these different responsibilities she has in order, and she says, I've got to get up early. 
I'm going to do these things for my family's sake. We see this idea of early in the morning, a lot of time in Scripture, from Genesis to the end of the book, that we see different people rising up early to do different things. And so this woman is doing it, even while it's still night. Now, it's easier when the daytime portion of our days are shorter, right? You can wake up at 7 and it's still night. Well, I'm not going to tell you what time you ought to wake up, but the idea is do you fulfill your responsibilities in your household and how can you, how can you uh, do that and get sleep and do all the other stuff that you need to and want to do. She gives food to her household. She provides these different things, brings her food from afar, so she has it available to them and a portion to her young women. Now, is that talking about her young ladies? No, it's probably talking about uh, servants in the house uh, it is those who have been in, uh, entrusted with different uh, work uh, brought in, maybe as a nanny, maybe as a housekeeper, maybe as a whatever, uh, just some kind of a, a servant or an attendant in the house. And to give a portion to her young, young women can either indicate she gives food to them also, so she feeds them, or a portion can refer to a task or job. So she delegates uh, certain responsibilities to these young women, young women who come in and serve the family. In either case, she is a valiant, brilliant administrator. She is able to delegate as appropriate. She's able to do what her own self requires of herself to do for her family. And she is just, she's on the job all the time. She also has a view outside. Verse 16, she makes plans for a field and buys it from the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. She is industrious. Good grief, this woman. She does the wool and the flax. She goes like a merchant ship getting her food. She does it. She wakes up early, and now she's going outside trying to think, what can I do with that field over there? Good grief. That's been an eyesore in the neighborhood for a long time. She p- makes plans. I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to have this row and this row and this row, a little fence, a little thing. She can make it beautiful, a little trellis, vine, all these wonderful things. She is going to make a vineyard. She's going to plant grapes because grapes are good for joy, Right? Wine makes a joyful heart. Medicine, wine is good for medicine, and it's useful for drink offerings, sacrifice to God. It's useful for presenting to God. And so we see this 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 plan that she, to buy a field. Where would she get the money? Well, her husband trusts her. She has, She's able to do these things, and she's able to allocate resources to the purchase of this thing. She has plans for it, not just to... Um, amass it to their wealth, but to make it productive, make it useful toward other people. And she is, um, she is a, a planner. She is able to, to uh, make uh, decisions and act on them and, and uh, bring it to pass, which is phenomenal. Making a decision and then acting on it. That's just, that's tremendous. Uh, we want to see that in ourselves and our other people. Verse 17, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Now, girding with strength, we've seen that even in relation to Job. Um, remember when Yahweh called out to Job, he says, gird your minds for action. I'm going to ask you and you tell me. Uh, girding of the mind has to do with, you know, tucking your shirt into your belt and putting your stitching, cinching down your belt, make sure that your clothes aren't going to fall off as you engage yourself in some pretty serious labor. She is girding herself with strength, with the energy to do something. She is both mentally prepared physically prepared. She has the tools. She has the the attire, the clothing that she's ready to serve and and work in this particular way. She makes her arms strong. She is, again, not afraid of hard work. She is not afraid of doing the difficult things for the sake of her family. She is ready to serve in any which way that she can, recognizing that she can't do everything, but she can do something to serve in this particular way. And she does as much as she can to strengthen her body, make it useful and to uh, be ready to accomplish the tasks that God has given to her. Verse 18 says, She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She has discernment. She is able to say, Yeah, we, we, we earned about $15 a pound on that whole mess, and it wasn't what we wanted. We were looking for like 28 But she, she's able. She's got it down to the science. She's, she's figured out. And says, Yeah, it, it worked out pretty well, but we're, what are we going to do different next time? How are we going to make this better? She has the discernment. She's able to evaluate what's going on. She is able to perceive both by experience or women's intuition, which is so mysterious and profound, yet usually trustworthy. Uh, And she is uh, willing and interested to say, hmm, we can do better next time. But it was pretty good. We're going to do something better next time to make it even better. Her lamp does not go out at night. And the question is, well, 
You mean she works all night? She gets up early while it's still night and, and she never goes to sleep? What in the kind of woman is this? This is impossible. I can't do this. No, the idea is that, that the households usually had a lamp. You all have nightlights in your house? Probably not with oil, but you have plugged in. And they're, they're on all night, right? Uh, that's the idea here. Not that she's awake working by the candlelight or lamplight, but that there is a nightlight going on all through the night. In other words, it didn't run out of fuel. She had enough. She planned for it. She prepared for it. She trimmed the wick just before bedtime so it would last until morning. She just plans ahead. She, she knows what's going on. And she is uh, quite available to make provision again for her family. And it's abundant. It is sufficient. It is wonderful. Verse 19 says, She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold fast the spindle. Remember that wool and flax that she harvested with her own hands? Well, taking that raw material, now she works it into thread and yarn and then into garments. What kind of woman is this? She, she makes her own thread? I mean, she feeds the, the lambs and the, and the sheep and all this, and now she, wow, it's tremendous. She stretches out her hands to the distaff. This, the distaff and the spindle are those instruments that are useful for making the, spinning the, the thread and the, um, the yarn and so forth from flax and wool and other materials, and it is just useful in that regard. But she, she stretches her hand, she does this, and she holds fast this and with her strong arms to accomplish these things. Notice, though, she is a hard work, hard work, how do you say it? Hard working woman. There we go. And yet, this next verse says that she also extends her hands to the poor. She does not say, well, here, you know, the little red hen kind of thing, who will help me to do this? She, she is one who is not arrogant or condescending on those who aren't as active as her for whatever reason, physical, emotional, whatever kind of situation. She extends her hands to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the knee. She is compassionate. She's gracious. She's generous. She's not proud and, and saying, well, you didn't work as hard as me and, and uh, looking down on them. No, she is... Uh, um, full of charity, of generosity. Notice also, she's not a, motivated by greed. She's not a hoarder. You know, you know, I can't give you any of my stuff because I don't know if I'll run out in my own family. No, she, there's plenty. Here, take some. Take, take two. Take, take the whole thing. We'll make more. It's not a big deal. She is so willing to meet the needs of other people. She's not full of herself. She's not hardened by her work. She doesn't close up her soul, her heart against those who are in need. She is just gracious to them. And notice it says she stretches out her hands. Remember how Jesus would go and he would touch lepers or those who are, I mean, not clean and not not clean in terms of ceremonial law, but also just dirty. But he would go and touch them and he would hug them. This is the same with this woman. She is just so engaged, not just, you know, writing a check and, and, and sending it out, but personally meeting these people's needs and uh, being very uh, gracious in that regard. <clears throat> verse 21 says she's not afraid of the snow for her household for all her household are clothed with scarlet to be afraid of something is to uh, look on something with with uh, great uh, disdain or anxiety or i don't know how this is all going to happen but she's not afraid of the snow which means it's cold right it doesn't snow in the summertime the snow isn't so much the fearful thing it's the cold and the wet because even again and if this is taking place in Jerusalem. It rains just like from November till March, and it may snow maybe in January, February, December, January, sometime in that period, but it's usually a wet kind of a snow, and it just gets on you, and it makes you all wet, and it's just, it's, it, there's a very great danger of, of hypothermia, getting too cold for these things, but she's not afraid because uh, for her household, any, all of her kids, all of her family is covered with or clothed with scarlet. Now, what's interesting about how it says it here, all our household are clothed with scarlet. This idea of scarlet can, of course, indicate the color, scarlet. And you think, what is it about scarlet again that makes it warm? Um, and people say, oh, it's, it's, it makes them stand out, right, from the white snow. Well, that doesn't make them warmer. How does that help? Uh, it could indicate comfort. It indicates a high cost. I mean, scarlet or, or crimson garments are, are, you have to dye them, D-Y-E, you have to color them, it means you have to have the dye, you have to prepare all these things. But the other idea in this word, scarlet, could indicate not just the color, but the quantity. It can indicate 
uh, a doubling up of a fabric or a doubling up of material. It could has to, uh, or a double thickness of the material, something that is uh, like a wool blanket or uh, it, it indicates warmth, indicates comfort, not just a color, in other words. And so it, it says she's, she's taken every precaution. It's don't get a snow. Don't get snow a lot of times in the Jerusalem hills or hills of Judah, but uh, sometimes you can, and it gets cold and it's wet, wet and, and rainy and uncomfortable. So she has whatever kind of modern material you'd want to think of now, but she had it. She's not afraid uh, for what might happen. Verse 22 says she makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So she's covering her kids. They're not going out naked or anything like that. And she makes coverings for herself, and it's good. It's quality stuff, fine linen. Where did she get the linen? She made it. Remember that flax? Remember this, the, the distaff and the spindle? She made this stuff, and she dyes it purple. Purple is an expensive dye to use. It takes a lot of time to create or manufacture, and so because of that, it's more expensive. But she says, yeah, I'm going to color or clothe myself with this. She has a sense not just for utility but also beauty. She knows what, what is right. My wife knows what color tie I ought to wear, and I don't usually pick the wrong two or three ones before I get the right one. She just knows what the right thing is, right association. And she is willing to say, yeah, it's beautiful. She senses that her gain is good. And now she says, that's right. That works so well. And she clothes herself, clothes, her, clothes herself with these wonderful garments. Verse 23 says, her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders of the land. Again, going back to the husband. What's the deal about the husband? Because this is an excellent wife no wonder the man is as good as, as you know, and good situation as he is. Um, and so she has the benefit of being underneath him, raising him up, establishing him, helping him look good, you know, kind of thing, and well-fed and taken care of. No worries, no troubles does he have back at home. He can go out and engage with the world, engage in the gates. He's able to go and sit with the elders of the land here. He's able to talk business, able to talk politics, able to talk uh, just community needs, able to talk about justice and, and exercise justice, just talk about farming, talk, whatever it is. He is able. He's free to engage in that regard. Her husband is known and celebrated. Remember how Job said it? Uh, I think it's chapter 29. He celebrates all these wonderful things that used to be true of him, that he, he would go to the gate and, and the old men and the young men would rise up and say, oh, Job, you come and sit next to me. And they would say, Job, what do you have to teach us today? And he would open his mouth and they would all listen and same kind of thing with this woman's husband. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits, sits down. He has a place, his own place to, to sit and talk and to conduct business and so forth. Verse 24 says, she makes linen garments and sells them, not just for herself, but enough to sell and even belts. She makes belts, whether leather or whatever, and, and sells them, gives them to the tradesmen. She is one who takes, again, the flax and, and, and the, the, the cloth or the, the linen that comes from that and makes it into garments. These kind of garments especially can refer to any kind of garment, could refer to an undershirt, could refer to any kind of underclothings, undergarments. You want the linen, the soft kind of comfortable uh, clothing right next to your skin for uh, a lot of purposes, comfort and, and uh, uh, temperature and moisture control and all that kind of stuff. And she is just so skilled in doing this and sells them. She makes a profit. She has a relationship with the tradesmen. She's able to conduct. She is industrious to just so many in different different realms and, and circumstances, and she is productive. It'd be one thing we are we as a culture are more oriented toward consuming or consumption. Uh, we just go out and buy stuff. There's very little production going on in the household level, whether it's food production, clothing production whatever, we're, we just buy stuff. It's already ready-made, ready-packaged, uh, fast food, all this kind of thing. Um, this is not that woman. She is, is industrious. She's productive. She is uh, a, a she's savvy commercially and is able to make a good return on her investment. Verse 25 says, Strength and majesty are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She is quite confident that what uh, she has done is adequate for any kind of things that may come. Could be the snow, she's not afraid of that. Could be the uh, a lean time, maybe we didn't get the, the produce out of that vineyard that we were hoping, no problem. We've got supplies, or we can trade. We have you know items that we can trade for, for the things that we need. She is clothed with strength and majesty. Again, talking about the, the excellent wife or the, the um, strong, mighty woman that she is, the strength that she has 
physically or personally, the majesty that she has, the ability, the, the uh, um, countenance or comportment, is that the right term? Uh, just you look at her and says, whoa, that's a woman. It's just together. She, she's filled with honor. Whereas you look at some other women and you say, what a disgrace. What a shame. Uh, it's like, uh, what is it, a gold ring and a pig snout? I mean, the gold ring looks nice. What about that pig? That's not good. What kind of woman is this over here? But this is a one who is just glorious in every which way. Notice it hasn't really talked about, you know, she's beautiful of, of form and face and all. No, in fact, it's going to talk about charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. So we'll get to that in a moment. But so much of what this proverb, this, this um, passage teaches, wow, this is a virtuous, productive, trustworthy, uh, strong, hardworking kind of woman to the best of her ability, right? Uh, she is just uh, different. Women have different capabilities. These are how can we be excellent in all these different ways? Well, you can't really. You want to focus on a few, however, but the overall picture is we're going to work. We're going to be willing to work. We're going to be trustworthy to other people. And we are going to have a confidence in this day and in the days to come. She smiles at the future. She's not afraid of it. Going back to Job, remember how the ostrich, the ostrich laughed at the horse and his rider because the ostrich was faster. Ostriches don't have arms, excuse me. The ostriches ran, they, they did all this stuff, and they could outrun a, a, a war horse. So they laughed, scoffed at these things. The woman is scoffing at the future and says, ah, I don't fear anything, it'll be fine. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the instruction of loving kindness is on her tongue. So she is able to teach. I mean, to do and to be active is one thing, but then to be able to teach and to communicate, not just, how do you do flax again? No, she's, she speaks in wisdom. She speaks in, this is what God expects of us. This is what God wants us to do. And let me tell you how to do it. Let me tell you what it looks like in a woman's life, in a young boy's life, in a, a girl's life. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the extraction of loving kindness or grace or just on her tongue. When she opens her mouth, it is just a pleasure to listen to her. She speaks what is true and right and good. She's not, we're going to see this, well, not so much in Titus 2. 1 Timothy 5 talks about young widows that they get to be busybodies. They have all this time on their hands, and they just abuse it. They gossip. They go from house to house. They're not doing things good. They need to be um, talking with wisdom and, and uh, loving kindness, useful uh, talk, not just frivolous or gossipy talk, or to be filled with worldly amusements. That's not what this woman is about. We see it also spoken of in First Peter 3, a gentle and quiet spirit. doesn't mean you can't say anything, but when you do say something, it is reflecting God's gracious instruction, uh, his instruction to us. Verse 27 says, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She knows what's going on, not just in the pantry and in the inventory, the, the different... Um, pots and pans that are, are going on. She knows what's going on in the children and the husband. She, she reads, uh, not the books so much, but the people and the situation. She has great discernment, observation, uh, monitoring, a, a diligent watchfulness over what's going on in her house so that she can adjust and make plans to arrange, make sure we have this cover, this need covered or this uh, issue addressed. And she watches over. She's always vigilant because she never sleeps, right? No, she does sleep. She has to sleep. But she is just so attentive to what's going on. That is, again, her God-given sphere. Now, it's not to say she can't go out and buy a field and, do, and, and engage with merchants and all these, but her mindset is focused on her house and what's the benefit that she can provide to them. She does not eat the bread of idleness. She's not about just uh, wasting her time or, or being uh, selfishly indulgent or selfish. She's not a sluggard. She is, you know, to eat the bread of idleness means, well, what are you going to eat tomorrow? Because you ate that bread. You got to go out and make some. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to eat what I have. No, you've got to be productive. You can eat your bread, but don't, don't not replace it. You better replace what you have. She is so active and, and industrious in doing these things. Verse 28, finally we get the children responding. Her children rise up and bless her. As for her husband, he also praises her, saying a certain thing. But the children rise up. They recognize, whoa, we have a good mama. She loves us. She takes care of us. She feeds us. We don't always agree with her instruction. We wish that she wouldn't restrict us from this thing. Boy, I wish we could do these things. But her children say, yeah, she's a good mama. And her husband praises her extols her, says, wow, you have done wonderful things, Just celebrating the fact that she is trustworthy, that she is for him and oriented her life around him. 
And so the husband says, the children also say, many daughters or just lots of women have done excellently, but you have gone above them all. And you think, oh, that's, that's nice, isn't that? Well, how many of, of our ladies have the world's best mom mug in the, in the shelf or the cup or uh, best wife ever or whatever? Um, I mean, it's hyperbole. We don't really mean it. We don't know that like maybe somebody else had a better wife. But for me, this is, this, is, this is my wife. This is my children's mother. And so we celebrate her. This is God's gift to us. And we say, thank God for those other mamas out there, other wives. But for, as for us, we give thanks for this one. You have been so wonderful. You, many daughters have done excellently, wonderful things. God bless them. But you're the best for us. And be, rest in that knowledge that you have made the right choice in the marriage. Well, guess what? When you made a choice, that's the right choice. And when you go to the marriage altar or whatever, that, that's the woman. And so what God has joined together, both by his design and his decree, and by the effect of that marriage, let no one seek to tear that apart. And so love the woman that God has given to you and be a lovely person. Verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. We see the twin aspects here of charm and beauty. Charm is, is the external attributes or the words that are being spoken or the, um, the demeanor, the activities. Look back at uh, Proverbs 7, you see what kind of a charmer is this woman, this adulteress? Oh, I mean, that's, that's charm was very deceitful. And her beauty, it is, there's a, a phrase that goes back centuries, beauty is skin deep, but ugly goes straight to the bone. Um, Beauty is vain. If you fall in love with that beautiful picture, well, what happens in 25 years? I mean, your picture has changed. What about her picture? If you fall in love with that and you need to find somebody else who meets that, what you expected or married 25 years ago, no. Charm is deceitful. So don't be looking for somebody who's externally uh, even manipulative and, and says all the right things and makes you feel like you're 10 feet tall and all this. No, that's deceitful. What is she after? What kind of manipulation is going on? And also, beauty is vain. Don't be that kind of woman, by the way. Don't be that one who says, you know, turn on the feminine charms and I can make that person do whatever. Like, I don't know, Delilah, perhaps, and Samson. Don't be that woman. It's, it's not to say that, oh, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, so you better just do with what you can. I mean, don't be looking for... Pick the, the, uh, the uncharming people and the ones who are on the lower end of the beauty scale. I, no, you don't have to settle for that thing. But realize that these things are can be deceptive and manipulative and lead your heart astray from these things. Beauty is vain, it's empty, it's short-lived. But there is a better thing you should be looking for. Not just the charming, beautiful woman, but a woman who fears Yahweh. That is what we look for. In other words, if you're looking for a spouse, first and not only, but definitely first and most important, and really there is no second that is like to it, does that person love God? love, fear, obey, tremble before him? Does he love? Does she love God's word? Does that woman fear Yahweh? She'll be praised. She will be celebrated. She'll be extolled. Maybe not by the world. Oh, you're such an old school fuddy-duddy. You don't fit in with us anymore. You don't play around the same games. Yeah, because those games are destructive. They are deceitful. They're wicked and they're not pleasing to God. I'm going to live a way that pleases God. A woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. In fact, it says, verse 31, Give to her from the fruit of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates. Publicly, for her stand, for her position in, in God, trusting him, recognizing that this is the sphere that God has given to her, the sphere of influence, the sphere of responsibility. Uh, the orientation she has is toward her husband, toward her children, toward her household. And then, of course, from that wonderful, secure base, She's able to extend her hands to the poor and, and give to the needy and exchange uh, belts and, and garments with the traders and, and buy food and make, make plans outside. She is celebrated because of her industry, because of her creativity, because of her strength of character, strength of will, because of her resiliency, because she, knowing what a buffoon her husband is, in any number of regards, buffoon, rather literally like Abigail and and Nabal, you know, Nabal is his name, and just like his name, he's a fool. Well, Abigail was a virtuous woman, and she took care, just, wow, that wonderful account there with caring for David and so forth. Let her works praise her in the gates, just as much as her husband is known in the gates. Also, you know, a, a, a great 
husband is not just backed up but, but supported and, and encouraged by a great, excellent, virtuous woman. So definitely, no question about it. This is a high standard, and what, man, what woman can attain to it? Well, one can attain to all these. Wow, look at that, just going. Uh, it, no one can do all these things, but hey, isn't Christ-likeness also a high standard? So should we say, well, I, I'm going to focus on being patient this week or this month or the, for the next 10 years. I'm going to be a patient person. What about gracious and compassionate and gentle? And I'll work on those later, but I've got to really focus on being patient. You can't do that. You've got to develop in, in all the different areas. You've got to grow. That was rude. I don't know why that did to me on the slideshow. Good grief. It's just, it's telling me I need to be done. Um, <clears throat> if you didn't get all those things, how can a, a single woman uh, fulfill, how can a single or just a woman, how can you do all these things? Well, come here. There you go. And this is just a restatement, a summary of what we just studied. Be trustworthy, do good to others, work diligently, all these different things that you can consider. But if you don't mind, it's not just, oh, and fear God. No, it's the woman who fears God. That is the basis for everything else that flows out of that. If you don't fear God, then forget about it. You can be the most crunchy lady out there. You can, you can be the, the uh, most industrious, hardworking, never-sleeping kind of woman. But if you don't fear God, it's nothing. It's a big zero. You fear God. You love him. You adore his word. You, you tremble at his word. You say, this, is, this word is my delight. The life that God has given to me, that is a good life. We see women who, who fight against this, this model. This, this, and it's not a, a straitjacket. It's not a, um, a restriction upon them. This is where the woman will prosper. And this is how God has designed her, made her, uh, oriented her whole mind, her affections, her attention on this, to love her husband, to love her children, to grow, to reach out to others. This is what God expects of us. Praise God that he's given us this context. Now again, making all the exceptions, next week we'll talk about what about childless marriages? What about single men, single women? What can they do about these things? We'll consider that next week. But right now, fear God. Fear God. Trust him. God knows what's best. We can rest upon him. If You remember that verse, Romans 8, 30, something or other, where he says, if God has not freely, if God has not withheld from us his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? In other words, God did the most wonderful thing. He gave us his son. So what about everything else? We can trust him for that. Maybe he's going to give a different set of gifts or, or blessings to other people. And we don't have the same situation, but we have the same God who is good and kind. We can trust him and rest in that knowledge and do what God has entrusted us to do for his glory, for the benefit of other people. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your kindness to us. We're grateful for the life that we have in Christ, the liberty we have in Christ to, to serve you without fear, without shame, without regret, without reproach even. And even if we do lack wisdom, you give wisdom to those who ask it. And we are grateful that we can use that wisdom to serve other people, to grow, to trust you more. We pray for our wives. We pray for our single women. We pray for our daughters also, unmarried daughters, that you would be very gracious. Help them to be the kind of woman who fears you and trusts you. And if you were to give them a husband, that they would do and fulfill their responsibility in that marriage. And if not, that you would make them the woman that, women that you want them to be. We are grateful that you are a just a wonderful, wonderful God. You give good gifts to your children. No question about that. We thank you particularly for the redemption that we have in Christ, the forgiveness, even as Bathsheba was involved with the sin of adultery, and yet perhaps was this one who instructed Solomon, who also was a debauched person who did all kind of wicked things, we can see how you are a gracious, redeeming, forgiving God, and you are just so wonderful. We can rest in that knowledge. We can say, you are my God. We'll praise you. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.